A series of events in London in the mid-1600s led many to think that the end of the world was near. In 1664, a comet appeared in the night sky for several months. That was followed shortly by an outbreak of the bubonic plague that killed nearly 100,000 residents of the city. And then the Great Fire of London began in 1666, which destroyed much of the city. Well, many thought that these were the predicted signs of the end of the world and that Jesus was just about to return. About a hundred years later, in the year 1780, the sky unexpectedly turned black in a portion of the northeastern United States. Again, many thought that this was a sign of the end of the world. Again, it was not. It was likely caused by a combination of thick fog, dense clouds, and heavy smoke from a forest fire. Well, the point is, though, that ever since Jesus ascended back into heaven, people have looked for signs of his return. They've looked to the heavens or looked at events around the world and interpreted them as signs that the end was near. Now, one of the reasons for this is that Jesus himself taught that there would be signs of his return. That's what we find in our scripture passage for this morning. You can turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 21. It's going to be in Luke chapter 21, verses 5 through 38. This is what is often called the Olivet Discourse. You can find a, a version of it in Matthew's Gospel and Mark's Gospel as well. And in this passage, Jesus uses a question that his disciples asked to prophesy about the end of all things. So look with me starting in verse 5 of Luke 21. As some were talking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, he said, These things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left on another that will not be thrown down. Teacher, they asked him, so when will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Then he said, Watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and rebellions, do not be alarmed. Indeed, it is necessary that these things take place first, but the end won't come right away. Then he told them, Nation will be raised up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be violent earthquakes and famines and plagues in various places, and there will be terrifying sights and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to bear witness. Therefore, make up your minds not to prepare your defense ahead of time, for I will give you such words and a wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will even be betrayed by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends. They will kill some of you. You will be hated by everyone because of my name, but not a hair of your head will be lost. By your endurance, gain your lives. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that its desolation has come near. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those inside the city must leave it, and those who are in the country must not enter it, because these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all the things that are written. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will be killed by the sword and be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles 
until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Then there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars, and there will be anguish on the earth among nations, bewildered by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will faint from fear and expectation of the things that are coming on the world, because the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, stand up and lift your heads, because your redemption is near. Then he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they put out leaves, you can see for yourselves and recognize that summer is already near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be on your guard so that your minds are not dulled from carousing, drunkenness, and worries of life, or that day will come on you unexpectedly, like a trap. For it will come on all who live on the face of the whole earth. But be alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. During the day, he was teaching in the temple. But in the evening, he would go out and spend the night on what is called the Mount of Olives. Then all the people would come early in the morning to hear him in the temple. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray as we come to this text that we consider the end of all things, that you would give us sober minds, that we would hear these words, that you would make us ready. Lord, I pray that you would give me clear words as I preach this text this morning, and that your name would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, as we study this passage this morning, my encouragement to you is do not miss the forest for the trees. Do not miss the forest for the trees. Now, that may not be an expression that you are familiar with. It simply means this. Do not get so distracted by the details, the trees, the individual trees, that you miss the big picture, like the whole forest that is standing right in front of you. So when you read this passage, it is easy to get distracted by the details and focus all your attention on things like wars and earthquakes and heavenly signs. Many Christians have spent a lot of time speculating about these details. There's not universal agreement uh, among Christians about what all these details mean or, or how that they will be fulfilled. But do not get so distracted by these details that you miss the main point. I do not believe Jesus is trying to explain every detail about the end of the world in this passage. His goal is not for you to anxiously analyze every world event. Instead, Jesus is teaching you how you should live in light of the certain judgment to come. He's not trying to answer every one of your questions about the end times, but instead encourage you to faithful living in light of the end times. In fact, Jesus gives you four specific exhortations or encouragements in these verses. These four exhortations will serve as the outline of the sermon. You can find them in the back of your bulletin. The first is do not be deceived. Let's find that in verses 5 through 9. The second, endure. Find that in verses 10 through 19. The third, hope. Hope. Find that in verses 20 through 28. And then the fourth, be on guard. 
You'll find that in verses 29 through 38. So those are the four exhortations that Jesus gives. The first is, do not be deceived. Now this passage begins with some of Jesus' disciples admiring the beauty of the temple in Jerusalem. The temple had begun to be renovated by Herod the Great uh, and expanded. By that time, it had become one of the wonders of the ancient world. The historian Josephus writes that the stones of the temple were so white, were so white that from a distance, the temple appeared to be a snow-covered mountain. It was beautiful, and it was certainly a point of pride for the people of Israel. So Jesus certainly shocked his disciples when he predicted that this temple would be destroyed. Now, for the Israelites, the temple was a sign of God's presence with them, a sign of their status as the specially chosen people of God. In their minds, it was a sign of of God's favor. But as we saw in our last sermon in Luke, God was not pleased with Israel. They had rejected God's authority. They had for so long failed to listen to his words and the prophets. And many in Israel were even then rejecting Jesus. Shortly after this, they're going to crucify him. Judgment was coming. The temple would be destroyed. Well, those listening, understandably, asked Jesus, when will these things happen? What should we be looking for? Like, when is this judgment? When is this horrific event going to take place? Well, the rest of our verses this morning are Jesus' answer to those questions. He gives an extended answer to those questions. Now, before we look at the details of Jesus' answer, I think it would be helpful to give you a short overview of his entire answer. Now, again, not all Christians agree on how these verses should be interpreted, but I believe Jesus was prophesying about two different events in these verses. I think Jesus is prophesying about two different events. In verses 8 through 24, Jesus was prophesying specifically about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple that would take place in 70 AD at the hands of Rome. That's what Jesus had just been asked about. If you look down at verse 20, you can see that Jesus spoke specifically about Jerusalem being surrounded by armies. However, starting in verse 25, I believe Jesus began to prophesy about a different event. He began to prophesy about the end of the world. So look at verse 26. People will faint from fear and expectation of the things that are coming on the world, not just Jerusalem. Verse 35. Judgment will come on all who live on the face of the whole earth, not just Israel. Now, in the minds of Jesus' disciples, these events were likely one in the same in their mind. They would have thought something as horrific as the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple would mark the end of the world. Like that had to be the end of all things. That's what they would think. But that isn't the case. That wasn't the case. Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed by the Roman Empire in 70 AD, about 40 years after Jesus' death. This is a matter of historical record. Jesus predicted it would happen. And it did. And yet the end of the world has not yet come. Jesus has still not returned. 
So why did Jesus link these two events together in his answer? Why does he talk about both? I believe it's because the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple is a type or a pattern or a a forerunner of the great end times judgment. What happened in Jerusalem in 70 AD is something of a real-life illustration of what will happen at the end of all history, a small-scale example of what will happen at the, the end of history. In that way, these two events are, are connected. They go together. Understanding one helps us to understand the other. The exhortations that Jesus gives his disciples, we should take as exhortations to us as we wait for Jesus' return. Now, with all that being said, we can get back to the specifics of Jesus' answer. We'll look at verses 8 through 9. In response to the question about when these things will happen, Jesus first exhorted his disciples to watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. Well, in fact, many false prophets and messiahs did appear prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. To quote the historian Josephus, there were many who deceived and deluded the people under the pretense of divine inspiration. These men convinced the multitude to act like madmen and went before them into the wilderness, pretending that God would there show them signals of liberty. So Jerusalem's about to be destroyed. All these false prophets come and say, hey, let's go out in the wilderness. God's about to save us and rescue us. That's what happened. But again, since the destruction of Jerusalem was a prelude to the end of all of history, it is no surprise that false prophets and false messiahs have been present ever since Jesus' ascension back into heaven. They will continue until Jesus returns. The New Testament tells us to expect false teachers and false prophets. Just a few decades ago, Reverend Sun Myung Moon of South Korea claimed that he was humanity's savior, Messiah, returning Lord and true parent, who God ordained to finish Jesus' mission on earth. He led thousands astray not just in Korea, but around the world. The Filipino pastor, Apollo Kibaloy, currently leads the Kingdom of Jesus Christ Church in the Philippines, which has millions of members. He claims that he is the appointed Son of God. Last year in Kenya, Pastor Paul McKenzie of Good News International Church prophesied of the coming doomsday, the end of the world, but he told his followers, that they could be saved if they starved themselves and their children to death. 400 died, including many children. Many will say, I am he, or the time is near. Church, watch out that you are not deceived. Actually, one of the easiest ways to be deceived is, I believe, to get consumed by the details of the end times. When you wonder if every natural disaster or every war is the fulfillment of some biblical prophecy, it is easy to get led astray by those who claim to know exactly what is happening. If you're consumed by anxiety over the end of the world or any suffering that might, be, that might come, well, it's easy to get led astray by 
those who tell you that you will be safe if you just listen to, to them. Starve yourselves to death. But what did Jesus say in verse 9? When you hear of wars and rebellions, do not be alarmed. Church, there are many false prophets who are only too eager to exploit any war or any disaster to tell you that you should listen to their message or or follow them. They are eager to tell you that the only way of salvation is to, to follow them. But beloved, I would caution you to be very careful before listening to any pastors who focus most, who focus most, of their attention on the end times. Or if they claim to to know what every single world event means, why this earthquake happened, why this typhoon struck this country, be careful before dedicating your time to YouTube channels that spend all their time speculating about these things. Church, watch out that you are not deceived. That's Jesus' first exhortation to you. Second, in verses 10 through 19, we see the exhortation to endure. Look at verse 19. By your endurance, gain your lives. It is the one who endures to the end who will be saved. Now, in these verses, Jesus warned that there would be much to endure before the end of the world would come. Verse 10. Nation will be raised up against nation and and kingdom against kingdom. There will be violent earthquakes and famines and plagues in various places. And there will be terrifying sights and great signs from heaven. Again, all this took place prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. There was a great famine during the reign of Emperor Claudius. It's actually mentioned in Acts 11.27. A great earthquake greatly damaged the city of Pompeii in 62 A.D., a many years' warning of the great eruption that would take place not too many years later. Josephus writes of a comet that was visible over Jerusalem for a whole year in 66 A.D. But again, since I believe the destruction of Jerusalem is a pattern of the end of the world, we should expect these types of things to happen throughout the time between Jesus' first and second comings. And so they have. The 20th century was the bloodiest century in recorded human history. It was a century of war and death. This week, in fact, marked the one-year anniversary of the, the large and devastating earthquake that hit Turkey and killed thousands and thousands of people. Less than 15 years ago, a famine in Somalia killed nearly 250,000 people. We do not have to think very far back to think of a plague that affected various places. COVID. Before that, you could think of the AIDS epidemic that devastated much of Africa. Or the bubonic plague, the Black Death, that killed one quarter of all people living in Europe several centuries ago. But Jesus did not just warn his disciples of natural disasters, but of persecution. He warned that they would be handed over to authorities and that some would even be betrayed by parents, relatives, and friends. In verse 16, Jesus told his disciples that many would be killed. Just go read through the book of Acts and you will see that all these things did take place. The church was persecuted. Most of the apostles were martyred. But again, the 
20th century saw more Christian martyrs than the first 19 centuries of the church combined. Brothers and sisters, there are many false teachers and false prophets who will tell you that God's will for Christians on earth is good health, safety, riches. They will tell you that if you just have enough faith that God wants you to live a blessed life, a victorious life, then your life will be good, easy, comfortable, prosperous. Your breakthrough is just around the corner. That's not what Jesus promises here. That's not what Jesus talks about in these verses. That's not what we should expect from the Christian life. He tells his disciples that they should expect to be hated for his name. In 2 Timothy 3.12, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, church, it is not freedom from suffering that is the mark of the Christian. It is faithful endurance during suffering that is the mark of the Christian. But church, in these verses, Jesus gives you two great words of encouragement to help you endure during times of suffering and trial. First, Jesus promises to be with those who suffer for his name. Look at verses 13 through 15. Persecution will give you an opportunity to bear witness. Therefore, make up your minds not to prepare your defense ahead of time. For I will give you such words and a wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. I think of Paul and Silas who sang praises to the Lord in prison and who God used to save the Philippian jailer. In Acts 6 and 7, we read about Stephen who was stoned and became the, the first recorded martyr of the church. Well, this is what is written about Stephen in Acts 6.10. His opponents, Stephen's opponents, were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. Well, if you're a Christian, you have been given that same spirit. You have the spirit of God. The spirit who brings wisdom and understanding. The spirit who strengthens you to endure the Spirit who can and will give you the words to speak if you are called to suffer for Jesus' name. A Christian, you need to be prepared to give a defense for the hope that you have. Jesus is saying like, ah, uh, you know, just take a break. No need to study scripture. No need to know anything. I'll give you words. No, we need to be faithful to be prepared to give a defense for the hope that we have. We need to be faithful to know the gospel well so we can share it. We need to be faithful to study the scriptures. But you don't have to be anxious if suffering comes. Jesus promises his wisdom and strength. The Spirit promises to bring to mind the truths from Scripture that, that you know. In fact, I believe that the Spirit does this not just in times of persecution and not just in times of suffering, but also when you have friendly opportunities to share the gospel. You can boldly and confidently ask for the Spirit to give you words of wisdom when the time comes to bear witness to Jesus' name. But beloved, in all of this, you should see that even suffering and persecution is under the sovereign hand of God. It is not outside of his control. Instead, he uses it in the lives of his people for the glory of his name 
He uses it to give his people an opportunity to bear witness to him. He uses it to strengthen their faith so that they can endure, to teach them to rely on him. Well, Jesus' second encouragement to those suffering is found in verses 18 and 19. Not a hair of your head will be lost. By your endurance, gain your lives. Now, this is an interesting statement because if you look at verse 16, Jesus had just finished saying that some of his disciples would be killed. So what does he mean that not a hair of their head would be lost? Well, church, he means that their eternal future is secure. Now, Christian, no matter what happens to you on earth, your life is, is safely and securely hidden with Christ in God. Your life, your eternal life, is seated in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, it is this truth that encourages you to live confidently and boldly in this world, even in the face of suffering. Church, it is only those who endure to the end who will be saved. It is only those who endure to the end who will be saved. But it is God who keeps us until the end. It is God who keeps the Christian until the end. It is He who has your life secure, seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So Christian, take heart. Suffering and persecution may come, but God is in control. It's not outside of His will. And God gives wisdom and strength to His people that they might bear witness to His name and that they might endure. He promises that no matter what happens on this earth, no ultimate harm will come to those who endure. He will keep you until the end. So, by your endurance, gain your life. The third exhortation that Jesus gives to his people is to hope. Find that in verses 20 through 28. To hope because your redemption is near. Now, thus far, Jesus has been speaking about the signs of the end. But in these verses, verses 20 through 28, Jesus takes us to the end itself. First, to the destruction of Jerusalem in verses 20 through 24, and then to the end of the world in verses 25 through 28, or 24 through 20. Oh, yeah, 25 through 28. So, destruction of Jerusalem, verses 20 through 24. End of the world, verses 25 through 28. Now, Jesus' exhortation to those in Jerusalem was to flee from the city when the armies of Rome began to approach because Jerusalem's destruction would certainly be at hand. Verse 20, Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those inside the city must leave it. And Jesus warned them to flee because the judgment coming to Jerusalem would be horrific. And it was. Before the Roman army destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, they surrounded the city for many months in an effort to starve the residents of Jerusalem and to get them to surrender. Again, to, to, to quote Josephus, he records that the famine was so bad that when the army finally entered the city and began going house to house, 
They found whole families that had starved to death at, at home because the famine had become so severe inside of Jerusalem. Many of those who did not starve were killed by the sword by the soldiers who entered. And those who survived, most of them were, were captured and taken captive back to Rome. However, however, Eusebius, a church father who lived in the 4th century, wrote that many Christians did in fact flee from Jerusalem before the city was surrounded and destroyed. They were alert. They saw signs that the, the end was coming. They saw the slow approach of the Roman army. And so they got out of the city. They listened to the words of Jesus. And their lives were spared. Well, in verse 23, Jesus made it clear that Jerusalem's suffering was an outpouring of God's wrath against Israel. It was God's judgment for their rejection of him. It was judgment for their sin. But look at verse 24. Jesus said, Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Jesus interjected a word of hope near the end of this talk of the destruction of Jerusalem. He seems to indicate that Israel's judgment would not last forever. Only until the time of the Gentiles was fulfilled. In Romans 11, the Apostle Paul wrote, A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. But Paul seems to suggest that there will come a point in time where many Jews will repent and turn to the Lord. Near the end of history, they will turn to Jesus. They will no longer be trampled, but find the mercy of the Lord. Again, I, I believe that the destruction of Jerusalem was just a, a preview of a greater judgment to come. But is this greater judgment that Jesus turned his attention to in verses 25 through 28? This judgment will happen when Jesus returns in glory and majesty to judge the living and the dead. I look at verse 27. Just as we read from Daniel 7 earlier, Jesus will come in a cloud with power and great glory. His coming will be unmistakable. He will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God. Every eye will see it. My friends, there have been many false messiahs who have claimed to be Jesus. Come again. They have claimed to be the messiah who has returned. But church, do not be led astray. There will be no mistaking it when the King of kings and the Lord of lords returns in glory. If you have your Bibles with you, turn with me for a moment to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. Because I think here in Revelation 6, the Apostle John writes about this very event near the end of that chapter. Uh, starting in verse 12, John writes this. Then I saw him open the sixth seal. A violent earthquake occurred. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of hair. The entire moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its unripe figs when shaken by a high wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved from its place. 
Then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, because the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? At Jesus' return, both the earth and the heavens will be shaken. His return will be accompanied by, by great signs. But notice on that day that there will be nowhere to run. There will be nowhere to flee. There will be no city to escape from. In terror, people will seek to flee from the wrath of the Lamb by trying to hide in caves and among the mountains. But there will be nowhere to hide from the wrath of the Lamb. Friends, the only place you can find safety on that day is in Christ. You will not find safety in the mountains or in the caves or buying a piece of property in a remote village, but only in Christ. Now, Jesus warned the people of Jerusalem to flee from the city when the day of its destruction approached. But friends, today Jesus urges you to flee to him, to take refuge in him, to hide in the shadow of his wings. And today, if you listen to his voice and turn to him in repentance and faith, you will find salvation. Friends, it is only Jesus who can rescue you from the wrath to come. It is only Jesus who can rescue you from the wrath to come. And that is because he lived the life that you should have lived. And he died the death that you deserve to die. He took the full force of God's wrath on the cross for everyone who would ever repent and believe in him. He was bruised and beaten and crucified in your place. He cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet after his death, three days later, he rose again for your justification. And he ascended back to the right hand of the Father, where he is even now ruling and reigning, and from where he will one day assuredly return. Christian, it is this glorious truth that Jesus died, was raised, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. It is this truth. This truth is the reason why you can be confident that not a hair of your head will be harmed. Because even now, your life is safely hidden with Christ in the heavenly places. Not a hair of your eternal life will be lost. And so notice the exhortation that Jesus gives to you, Christian. When the signs of Jesus' second coming appear, you do not need to run in terror. Instead, you're to hope. Look up in eager expectation because your redemption is near. You don't need to fear his judgment because you've been freed from his wrath. Instead, on the day of Jesus' return, you receive the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So the cry of God's people, the cry of the church is, Come, Lord Jesus, come. We're, as his people, to set our hope on the day of his return. However, we do not know when that day will be. No one knows the day of Jesus' return. The Bible makes that quite clear. 
And because no one knows the day of Jesus' return, Jesus' final exhortation to you from this text is be on your guard. Be alert. Be ready. Look again with me, starting in verse 29. Then he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they put out leaves, you can see for yourselves and recognize that summer is already near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be on your guard so that your minds are not dulled from carousing, drunkenness, and worries of life, or that day will come on you unexpectedly, like a trap, for it will come on all who live on the face of the whole earth. But be alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And during the day he was teaching in the temple, but in the evening he would go out and spend the night on what is called the Mount of Olives. Then all the people would come early in the morning to hear him in the temple. Church, these verses present an interesting contrast. In the parable of the fig tree, Jesus taught that there would be recognizable signs of his return, of his coming. And yet, in verse 34, he said that we need to be on guard. So the day of his coming does not come on us unexpectedly, like a trap. So though there are signs to recognize, it seems they may be easy to ignore or miss altogether. So we must be alert. And so in this parable, Jesus taught that just like the blooms on a tree signal that summer is coming, so there will be signs of his coming. He told his disciples that when they see these things happening, they should recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Then Jesus says something interesting in verse 32. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all things take place. Well, What did Jesus mean? What generation is Jesus speaking of? What was Jesus promising would take place? Friends, you should just know, those are questions on which there is much disagreement, even among Christians. Actually, that's just kind of true of this whole passage. There are so many different interpretations that would be impossible to give them all to you. You may not agree with my interpretation. That's okay. So there have been some who have claimed that Jesus was teaching that he would return in the disciples' lifetime, even in the disciples' generation. Now, most people who believe this say that this proves Jesus was wrong and mistaken, and therefore he cannot be God. He wrongly thought he was going to return just a few years later, and he got it wrong. It's a way that people discredit Jesus and reject him. So I just said it was fine if you disagree with me. It's not fine if you think that. You can't be a Christian and think Jesus is wrong. But I don't think that is a very convincing argument. To believe that, you have to believe that the disciples just like invented all this stuff, that Jesus didn't say it. Or if you believe Jesus said it, you have to believe that Jesus predicted the destruction of Jerusalem that took place in 70 AD with great accuracy. Uh, But then he like was wrong about when he was going to return. How is Jesus going to predict the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD with great accuracy unless he is God? Well, it even seems that Jesus predicted that people would twist his words and make this very argument. Look at verse 33. What does he say right after? 
heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. He pointed his disciples to the enduring truthfulness and reliability of his word. Church, if Jesus says it will happen, it will certainly happen. His word is without error. God is not a man that he can lie. Another interpretation of this verse, one held by many faithful Christians, is that the generation Jesus is referring to here is not the apostles' generation, but instead the generation of people who will witness the signs that will take place before Jesus returns in glory. In other words, whatever generation begins to witness the signs of Jesus' coming, that generation will certainly witness his return. If these signs begin in our generation, our generation will certainly see him come. However, I do not personally think this is what Jesus meant either. I do believe Jesus was speaking of that present generation, the apostles' generation. I just don't believe he was promising that generation would see his return. He was simply saying that they would witness the signs of his coming. The things Jesus speaks of in verse 32 are the signs of his coming, not the coming itself. After all, he said that the signs would simply mean that the kingdom of God, his return, is near. Not that it would immediately happen. Now, the disciples' generation certainly witnessed signs in the heavens. Wars and rebellions, famines, earthquakes, plagues, and persecution. These signs began in the disciples' lifetime, and they certainly continue today. So I believe Jesus' point here is like the only thing really left to take place is his return. In some sense, it's like the next thing on God's to-do list. Everything else has been checked off. Nothing else has to happen. Jesus could return at any time. Therefore, be on guard. Be ready. Be alert. Now, the intensity of these signs may increase as we get closer to Jesus' return. Natural disasters, natural disasters, persecutions, tribulation, they may increase. But even if they do, we may not recognize it. There have been so many periods in history where things in at least a certain part of the world got so bad that Christians were convinced that Jesus was about to return. World War II, probably go talk to Christians in North Korea today. The disciples, as they witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem, Throughout history, you can read of Christians who have thought, oh yeah, the end is about to happen. We may not recognize increased tribulation as easy as we think we will. Therefore, we must be on guard and be ready. Now, you might also be wondering, but didn't Jesus say his return was near when these signs began? 2 Peter 3.8 Dear friends, do not overlook this one fact with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. And God's timing has only been a couple of days since Jesus ascended. His return is near. And so, beloved, Jesus exhorts you to be on your guard. Look at verse 34. Jesus warned of the danger of becoming so consumed with the things of this earth that you are not ready for his return. The, the world around us can easily blind us to eternal realities. 
Satan would like nothing more than to tempt you with drunkenness and other worldly pleasures so that you're not ready for Jesus' return. He would love nothing more than to encourage you to be so concerned and so anxious about the things of today, the things of this world, that you have no time for eternal things. Maybe you think, I'll get to God when I'm less busy. I'll pursue my relationship with Jesus when work gets less busy or the, the kids move out. Well, friends, those thoughts are from the evil one. Be on your guard. Be ready for Jesus' return. Judgment will one day come on the face of the whole earth, so repent and believe today. Flee to Christ. That is the only place to find safety. Church, how can we be on guard? How can we stay alert? How can we keep ourselves from being blinded by the things of this earth and to miss the signs of Jesus' coming? Look at verse 36. It is to pray. Jesus does not tell you to try to link every current event to some biblical prophecy. He does not tell you to go find the pastor who tells you he knows exactly how the war between Israel and Gaza fulfills some end times prophecy. He tells you to be ready at all times by praying. Pray for the strength to escape all these things and and stand before the Son of Man. In other words, pray that God will give you the strength to endure the persecutions and famines and earthquakes that are coming. Pray that he will give you the strength to endure in faith. Pray that he will strengthen you to endure until the end and that he will present you faultless and blameless before the throne of grace. Friends, Jesus does not promise you that you will escape earthly suffering. He does promise you that if you are in Christ, not a hair of your head will be lost. Uh, So we pray. Pray for Jesus to hold us fast. We praise him that our eternal future is secure in him. Over and over and over again we flee to him because he is a refuge in times of trouble. I love how this passage ends. Look at verses 37 and 38. It ends with Jesus simply going about his mission on earth. He just kept teaching. He knew the end was near. He knew his life was about to end. He just had a few more days here on earth. And yet, what did he do? He simply went to the temple and continued teaching. Brothers and sisters, that's what it looks like to be ready for Jesus' return. It looks like simple and ordinary Christian faithfulness. We do not get ready by anxiously looking to the heavens, stocking up on months' worth of food for the apocalypse that is coming. We prepare for Jesus' return by faithfully listening to his word by faithfully obeying him, by being good stewards of all that he has given us, by sharing the gospel faithfully, even if we are hated for his name. Christian, to be ready for Jesus' return is just to live the simple and ordinary Christian life. So church, do not miss the forest for the trees. Do not get caught up in speculation about the end times. Do not try to interpret every current event through the lens of biblical prophecy. Live a faithful and ordinary Christian life. That is how you prepare 
for Jesus' return. Let's pray.